From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihera Zazan. June 20th, 2021 marked a new page in modern Iran's history of a struggle for social justice. On that day, in a spectacular display of the power of collective action, tens of thousands of contract workers in the petroleum, gas, and petrochemical industry started a strike, which has since engulfed 97 facilities in eight provinces in Iran. The strike takes place against the backdrop of an economy that even before the imposition of the crippling sanctions by the Trump administration had created a deep class divide and a sharp rise in poverty and unemployment. Having witnessed the workers' strike and their pivotal role in the 1979 revolution and wary of their threat to existing economic and political power structure, the repressive regime in Iran prohibits the formation of independent labor organizations. Shahram Aghamir spoke about the significance of the strike and the underlying reasons for the ongoing workers' protests in Iran with Shadyar Umrani. Shadyar is a researcher, freelance journalist, and an activist. She is also a founding member of two Iranian organizations advocating gender equality. Majority of the workers, almost all, are the ones that are temporary under contract with private sector contractors. These contractors are hiring these workers under very unconventional circumstances. There are other workers from different parts, like steel workers, contract teachers, etc., who are also on strike. And while they are not officially a part of this general strike, but they are supporting the strike as well. I need to also add one more thing. That is the crisis today, which has involved almost the entire country, and that is the electricity outage. And that has brought about some new fire to the whole situation. So we see some protests here and there in different cities. Today in Dehloran, one of the major cities where these petroleum contractors are on strike. People have also gathered in front of the utility department along with the workers and things got a little bit escalated and police went there and things are being too hard to ignore these days in Iran. What is the significance of these strikes and why are they taking place now when Iran's economy is in dire straits? By all accounts, currency devaluation and hyperinflation, as well as high unemployment rates, have surely immiserated the lives of the working people and the poor, leading to discontent. But at the same time, any work stoppage can be a very risky undertaking in a place where workers have very limited legal protection and can lose their jobs in an economy with high unemployment rates. A good question, actually. It's being asked by many people who are not a part of the workers' movement in Iran. Why now? Actually, it is not now. Especially about the petroleum section, the workers went on strike in 2020. Last year was a very 
significant year in the history, actually, of the workers' movement in Iran. We had 1,900 protests and strikes within a year in Iran. While the pandemic was there, there have been mass unemployment and an unbelievably high rate of inflation. If you count on your budget today for the basic goods, you would not know that you can pay as much tomorrow to buy the same. The inflation is growing and that is a big problem for almost every part of the working class in general. However, for the workers who are in contract and temporary contract, that is a bigger deal because they cannot budget the time that they are not employed, especially in petroleum section, because usually these contracts are seasonal. Especially those who work in summertime may not find themselves back to work for the winter and vice versa. So they depend on their income to support them for the next six months that they are not employed. And they could not do that due to the inflation and the economic crisis at the moment. The pandemic has also added to the problem. The unemployment and not getting enough vaccines or any sanitation there, especially in places like Asaliya, which is a region where only the workers work. And as they're done with the contract, they are supposed to go back to their cities. So it's not a residential place. These workers, when they go and return to their home, they are exposed to different types of diseases, including these days, coronavirus. And they may bring it back to the factory. And the change of the government at the same time, with almost no future hopes of changing the entire system of privatization, has brought more worries to these workers. That is why I can see a path which has been taken for decades and especially for the past four years now being continued and escalated at a higher degree in different parts of Iran. People would think that when we're talking about oil, it is only the southern part of Iran. But many of these fineries and oil industry factories and etc. are in other parts of Iran, including Tehran. So many parts of Iran geographically are also involved and that makes it a massive movement today. What would make one characterize the strikes as being significant? Iran is a country which earns most of its income through anything that grows in the land, including mines and most importantly, oil. So the oil industry, although it's not the only income, for the government, but it contains the very high range of income that the government relies on, especially during all the sanctions and etc. Even in a new budget, I think, despite all the claims of the economy not being so dependent on, on petroleum products, it seems like 40% of the budget was based on this sector. 
Exactly. Actually, that percentage has decreased during the past decade. However, that 40% is the most significant part because it is not only the matter of economy, but also political economy, which is involved. Iran, as a member of OPEC, you cannot just deal with it as if any factory or any working class movement when it comes to petroleum of Iran as one of the biggest members of the OPEC. So it is important for the government in Iran. It is important for the economy of Iran. Also, it is important for the West, especially for Europe, which highly relies on this source of energy at the moment. So it is politically can change the face of the world economy and politics if things are in hand of these workers and a change happens. That is why you can see a big political silence coming from Iran's government, all sections, and the administration of Rouhani at this moment trying to not highlight this issue because they find it even a kind of a threat politically at this very important time of their struggle with the West. This is my understanding of the employer's modus operandi. Uh, The oil ministry enters into contracts with multiple contractors to do work on a facility or on a project. And these contractors may subsequently subcontract their work to other entities. Exactly. These contractors and subcontractors hire workers on their own to deliver the products and services stipulated in their contracts and agreements with the government and oil ministry. The ongoing strikes involve tens of thousands of those who can be broadly described, as you mentioned, contract and temporary workers. These strikers are on the payroll of the contractors. They're different from the workers who are classified as quote-unquote, official government employees. They call them Estekhdam Rasmi. And these so-called official government employees, of course, are on the payroll of the oil ministry. Do we have an estimate of the number of striking workers? Also, given the stratification that I just mentioned, and beyond that, there is stratification between any kind of workforce of this nature. What can you tell us about the makeup of the workers participating in the strike that is, their job classification, their education and skills, and the type of work that they do. There's one thing that I need to add to what you said. Oil industry is a national industry in Iran from scratch to the profit. So from zero to hundred that is produced and sold is supposed to be a part of a national income. That's based on the Iran's constitution. That's stipulated exactly. in the constitution. Exactly. Because it's considered a vital resource of the country. Yeah, and that's a result of an anti-imperialist movement uh, which ended with Mossadegh and actually won this as a right back to the people. However, things have been different <laughs> for the past four decades. It started, if I'm not mistaken, with the date. So it was 1983 when at first as a part of a five-year program. At the time, it was just a plan to start making the government small. 
it didn't happen at the time. It, it took about a decade until it became a part of a practice during Rafsanjani's administration. In that plan, everything that is owned by the government, run by the government, and is supposedly a collective ownership by the entire nation, is supposed to be gradually, the word gradually, I quote and unquote, be given to the public sector. It's a public asset yeah. that would be privatized gradually, as they say. What happened was that during this gradual action, mostly what we call it SEPA, IRG. It's the Revolutionary Guards. To get the timeline right, I know you mentioned Hashemi Rafsanjani's government. You're talking about mid to late 1990s. Exactly. It is after Iran and Iraq war. The IRG, so the Iranian Revolutionary Guards, started entering the economic sections and they started to deliver this transaction from public ownership to private ownership. I heard it today from uh, one of the colleagues who was an expert as Iran has hit the list of the most privatized country in the Middle East for the past decade. It is happening at high rate and oil has not been singled out from this transaction. You asked me about how many workers are involved. When the contractors go with temporary contracts, it's hard to estimate how many workers are involved because they are not permanent. They come for a very short period of time. They work for three months or four. And as they're done with their contract, they are no more regarded as a worker. That is why when last week, Mr. Rouhani said that these workers are not the oil and industry workers, they are the ones that work on those sites. He was uh, being politically correct about these type of shenanigan, I call, way of uh, dealing with the issue. What we have now in hand, there are more than 60,000 workers who are on strike. Okay, so we have that number, about 60,000, that's our estimate. More than that. That was the estimate last week when there were 75 companies involved. What is our estimate of the number of these temporary and contract workers. So is it about 120,000? Is that a fairly accurate number? I'm not sure about that okay. high, okay. but I can easily call for 70,000. 60,000 of these people are on strike. As we yes, estimate. exactly. Who are these people? What's the makeup of these works? What is the job classification, their education and skills and the type of work that they do? Correct me if I'm mistaken. True, some of these people only work for a few months. Exactly. They're called Kaigarana Proje, you know, they work on specific projects. But there are people who have been there for several years, sometimes over 10 years, and they're still contract employees. Yes, they are. And they have to renew their contract. So in order to be able to renew it, they have to keep themselves fiddle to the codes of their previous contract which may include ban for any type of strike or getting involved. Today, I received a rough sheet of one of those contracts. And there was an article there, uh, number 13, uh, which boldly says that the contract can be uh, called off, even if it is the very last day of the contract, 
if the person, if the contractor gets involved in any type of strike. If the worker gets involved in the, Yeah, the workers are referred as contractor. Right. So right. that is why the government says that they are not workers. What is happening is this. Imagine you're working side by side with another worker. Your contracting company is different from the one who is standing next to you and is doing the same thing, the same job that you are doing. Same job classification, the same skills. Same, create. everything same, the same time, the same hour and the same skill. But you are working through two different companies. You are earning different things. So one might be earning $500 per month. The one next to you is earning less. And the one on your left may be earning even more. So there is a deregulation process that is happening through privatization. That is why it is hard even to, to unite when we're talking about uh, workers being united mm. because many of these workers are not even dealing with the same company. That is mm. why things get escalated. Their demands are beyond demanding from their contracting companies, but is dealing with a higher demand from the government. And they cannot just go for a raise in their income or salary or wage or etc. etc. They need to deal with the matter of privatization. They do not want these contracts. Some of these workers who work in these low-pay positions, they have college degrees and they have, sure. they're highly skilled. They're welders, they're plumbers, they work on these uh, large diameter pipes. Highly skilled workers. Yeah, there is this sort of a myth that these workers must be the low-skilled workers, so they're dispensable. But that's not really the case. Back in early 2000, I worked for one of those companies as a, as a teacher. I was on a contract. The headquarter was in Tehran. And I was hired to teach these very, very high skilled engineers. Some of them even have been their PhD, uh, MA and or MS degree. And I was supposed to teach them English so that they could go to Asalia, especially to start working there. That company, which is one of the two great privatized oil companies in Iran, they were employed when they were in Tehran. But when they would be sent to Asaluye, they had to go through another holding, this is what they call the holding companies. Those holding companies are bigger contractor companies. Usually uh, they're related in a way or another to IRG, the Iran Revolutionary Guard. And some of them are given the chance to run, for example, one specialized part of the company or the factory. Imagine some of them becoming a ward of one part. And then they themselves, so these engineers who are now being uh, temporalized, are given the chance to deal with some smaller contract companies to hire some less qualified engineers. And this chain goes on and on to some low skilled. If somebody wants to be in that big factory, that plant is so dangerous to enter due to those mechanical and technological things that even if you are a chef, you must be qualified to work in that condition. Now they're demanding $500 per month. 
employers and more than that, the oil ministry and the government and the, the regime were very concerned about a sort of an ultimatum issued by, as you call them, permanent or quote-unquote official government employees or workers who work on the payroll of oil ministry because they also announced that if their demands were not met by June 20th, they would also initiate their own strike that could possibly merge with the ongoing strike of the contract employees. And the government intervened quickly to prevent the strike from actually happening. So last week, we were expecting those who are officially employed, permanently employed, especially in drilling section, to join these contract workers. That didn't happen. It did not stop the strike, however, because that number was not as high. And the contract workers already could assume that might happen because that part of workers, those who are officially employed, is the only part that the government is referring to. And the government threat happened in a very bold way. And you could read it in the statement that was given. So it could be a security threat. If you joined this strike, it means that you're supporting imperialism, etc., etc. And just trying to feed them with very little bit of a raise and putting these two sections of workers in front of each other as if they are not sharing the same type of interest, which is not true. But this is how practically happened. The Council for Organizing Protests of Contract Oil Workers appears to be the voice of the uh, strikers. This council has issued a number of statements so far. They articulate the demands of the striking workers. Can you tell us what those demands are? And are they more or less uniform across different industrial units and geographical divides? Because we know this strike is widespread. You know, it goes through different facilities and units. They have tried, actually, because they have this committee. There are more than one. For some security reason, I I rather do not announce how many. So they come to one agreement, which covers the common interest of all. I'm going to read them quickly to you, and you will see that what is a higher demand at higher level. So the first is no wages less than $500 per month. We talked about how high skilled they are and $500, that's a joke. So $500 per month. Two, recognition of the right of association, assembly and protest of workers. Timely payment of wages. The wages are not being even paid. And the contractor's monopoly over hiring and firing practices. Stop dismissing strike workers, which is called a blacklisting, which is happening right now today while I'm talking to you. Wage increase as inflation rises. 20 working days and 10 days off. There's a campaign called 2010. There's a regulation in Iran about the jobs that are classified as hard and hazardous. These workers should not work more than 20 days per month. So for each 20 days, they should get a 10-day off. Since privatization has happened, the private companies now have 
the right and the flexibility actually to change this. And these days, what we can see is 26 days work in four days off or 24 days work in six days off. And imagine people are moving to a place which is not a residential place. So they don't have their family with them. And if they want to go back to their home while they are on their vacation, they cannot go for about a week and come back. There would be almost no vacation for them. So what they are demanding is going back to that law and regulation, which is ratified by the government to be observed by these contractors. They don't do and they're not obliged even to do that. And the last but not least, observance of health, environmental and workplace safety standards. What you could read behind all these things is that the privatization of the oil industry has brought all these problems that may have been there even while they were employed by the government, but are now being so deregulated that it's hard to deal with or struggle against. It cannot be solved. None of these demands can be met if the privatization and the role of the private companies still remain. What about the elimination of these mediating companies, contractors and subcontractors from the oil sector? It was there from the beginning, so it doesn't come in the list, but it comes in the conclusion paragraph. I'm not going to read the entire thing. The process of privatization is not something that can easily be solved by any government in Iran at this moment and is not actually what they really want to do. Ibrahim Raisi, the upcoming (laughs) administration, yes. This president, and before even becoming a, a candidate, he has been a part of this privatization plan and program for years. He has devoted himself actually to it. Two years ago, when there was an uprising in Iran against privatization, and that started with the sudden increase of gas and petrol in Iran, Ibrahim Raisi was the one who was trying to condemn the demand, saying that privatization is not bad, but it should be done in a right way. And to him, the right way is his way, which means the involvement of Sepah and IRG. None of these administrations and governments have ever tried to step back from this escalating privatization process. Even Ahmadinejad, we could see the highest number of privatized companies during Ahmadinejad's eight years of administration. I know the workers and what they want, and it's a very difficult thing to put just as a quick demand. That's why you cannot see in the first demands, but you can see in the concluding paragraph, which actually bonds the entire movement at the moment to other movements in the past and in parallel, which is happening in Iran. We have teachers movement, which is also at this time on strike. I remember seeing this illustration supposedly coming from the workers. It was a triangle. In this triangle, the base is the elimination of the contractors from the petroleum and gas sector. If you can visualize that. And the two sides of this triangle 
if I'm not mistaken, have to do the issue of job security. And the other side of the triangle is the issue of wages, compatible wages. So they're saying without that base, without removing those outside contractors and without elimination or removal of the outsourcing of the work of the oil industry, you cannot accomplish these fair wages, reasonable working conditions, job security. What is the difference between somebody who is supposedly so quote-unquote official worker of the oil ministry and somebody who is a contract worker, many of whom are on strike right now? What is the difference between them in terms of job security, wages, compensation, like a different type of medical benefits, and their rights? When it comes to the matter of job security, there's a big gap. Because most of these officially employed workers work on a very politically sensitive parts of the industry, which is the drilling, where the beginning of the entire process of production happens. If the drilling stops, everything stops. So that is the main reason uh, the government, although has massively eliminated its role in this industry and has given all the ownership to this and that company is sensitive about this section and has kept them within reach. That's why for the public, it is hard to imagine if someone is working under the old rig having any financial problem. Whatever comes to mind stereotypically is that the oil workers earn a lot. Actually, they are not earning a lot, but they are feeling a little bit of security. So as soon as they may even just spread the words of strike, they receive some response. This strike that we're talking about, Rouhani's government, did not respond to them as quickly either. Yeah, to these quote-unquote official permanent workers of the yes. industry. Yeah, be- because yeah. it was very hard for them to imagine that these workers, which are being 24 hours watched with all security eyes, could become united because they don't have any rights for having their assembly either. The government was in a shock and didn't know how to approach. And they left it to the very last moment. So the threat and immediately uh, the statement came just about 24 hours before the announced strike. That is why it is hard to imagine that these officially employed workers are now acting against their co-workers who are on contract. But privatization is something that technically changes the way that people can struggle. So it's not only the matter of its impact on every individual worker's life, but also on the entire movement, which divides them technically, even geographically. So those who are doing the drilling may not even be in touch with the other part, which are working on different sections and through different private sectors and et cetera, et cetera. And they may not even see their family for months and they are so detached from other parts of the society even. That's Shadyar Omrani, 
speaking with Shahram Agamir about the ongoing mass workers' strike in Iran. We'll hear more after a break. From Pacifical Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. If I'm not mistaken, when the 1979 revolution happened, the number of contract employees in the major sectors of Iran's economy was around 10%. Today, is it's understood that somewhere between 90 to 95% of the employment in the country's formal economy are contract employees. That's a sharp rise. This figure is mind-blowing. Do we know the percentage of contract workers in the oil, gas, and petroleum sector as we speak. What explains this shift in the power relations between labor and capital in Iran, resulting in such a large number of contract workers? Actually, there is no official estimate or statistics, but we assume that the same range, about 5 to against 95, you could see the same pattern in the oil industry. Today, we know that even the electricity is as much privatized. So the entire economic turmoil can happen if uh, while workers are on strike, suddenly the owners, the private owners of these very important industries decide to go on strike. What happens to the workers, what happens to the people, what might even be the impact on the government and the state. It's not only the petroleum workers, it's what every person in Iran is now dealing with. So in about two weeks of petroleum strike, now we can see national outage of electricity. And when we dig in, we see that one third of the biggest electricity companies in Iran are now run by very private sectors, uh, some of which are through contracts with the holding companies, which are also the holding companies in petroleum and gas. One of them is Aryan Mahtagosar, which is one of the biggest holding companies. The other one is Mitco. So these companies are investing in almost anything, anything that can be regarded as basic rights of a nation, the right to have the electricity, water, gas. When we talk about private companies, because you mentioned some of these entities before also, Revolutionary Guard, let's make sure that we have a common understanding of this thing. The striking workers have demanded that the oil industry and the practice of outsourcing the work to outside contractors. Again, as you mentioned, a practice that seems to have started in the mid-1990s in the oil, gas, and petrochemical sectors. 
there seems to be 300 or so, and we are not sure about the numbers, companies that operate as contractors in these sectors. It's interesting that while workers are not allowed to have their own independent organization or unions, these employers have their own association called Iranian Petroleum and Energy Club. Many of these contractors are tied to the economic powerhouses in the country. As you mentioned, the Revolutionary Guards and foundations such as Astana Gotsa Razavi and entities such as Setad Ejraj Farman Imam, the execution of Imam Khomeini's order, uh, which is an economic and financial empire controlled by, by the Supreme Leader Ayatollah Khamenei. And it's estimated that upward of 75% of Iran's economy, again, this is an estimate because we really don't have exact figures, is owned and controlled by such entities that are characterized as neither private nor government-run. But there are pivotal components of the state in Iran. When I say the state, is obviously it goes beyond the government. So they now own what used to be a public asset and was run by the government. They also form the pillars of the regime's political, ideological, and coercive apparatus. They have their own budgets. They generally don't pay any taxes unlike private companies, and their heads are appointed by the supreme leader, unlike what is a classic definition of private company. Their inner workings are opaque to the public and they are not accountable to the public, so that means they are not publicly owned companies. You are turning a public asset, you're handing it out to these other entities. They're no longer owned by the public. They're no longer controlled by the public. I understand that point. Does it fit the definition of privatization? Since 2018, we are having real private owners now. What is happening is that during 1980s, before Iran ended the war with Iraq, so it is 1983, when the matter of joining the world economy was raised, by Hashem Rafsanjani at the time. It was opposed uh, very strongly by those who were close to Khomeini, the leader. It could not be implemented because of the war. That was another reason. But it started to be implemented in different ways. So the first pattern that Rafsanjani used was a pattern that the very late Soviet Union had. That was a five-year program. So those five-year economic program he had was under the name of rebuilding the country. So it was the matter of like neoliberal thing at the time, but being uh, legitimized as today we are post-war and we have had a lot of destructions and we need to renew everything. And it was cheered by Everyone. Very little opposition happened at the time. Little by little, so we go through 1990s. The Soviet is gone and those plans are no more working. And there's no reason even to hide behind those plans. People are now in the world shouting for more globalized economy. And Khatami comes into mm-hmm. power in 1997 and he comes to the United States 
and gives a speech about the civilization that we share and let's have that discourse between the civilization, etc., etc. Even ideologically convince the part of the regime that were resilient about the type of economy and economical policies that it is a kind of our manifest destiny. And uh, we need to do that if we want to make a Shiite ideology a more globalized ideology. We need to invest economically. That was what started to be done in Lebanon by the Iranian government. So first in Lebanon, then in Iraq, later in Syria, and um, sometimes even they thought about doing that in Afghanistan. What they did is to invest in those countries. And they invested even in, in more infrastructure, like the power, utility, electricity, hospitals, etc etc as it worked they were bold enough to say that it's time for us in iran to set ourselves free from regulations and start privatizing so that was why sepa irg before starting to be a part of internal or local or national economic mediator let's say had already practiced it in other countries. That was 2012 when we first see that what happens in a power industry and electricity is that uh, the government finds itself under a lot of debt in order to clear the debt. It gives the largest power factory in Iran, the largest and even in the Middle East, that is called the Damovand, to a part of IRG that is called Bonyade Shahid. We can see that the privatization is uh, not what we are acquainted with as private, because there are, in a way or another, related not only ideologically, but also administratively mm -hmm. and budget. IRG has a budget. Bonyad Shahid has a budget. The government is given the budget. And with that budget, they are buying some parts of the government. Both ideology is now involved. Economy is involved. And privatization has become a matter of joke. What kind of private company is that? So this happened during Ahmadinejad and early Rouhani time. As things got worse and worse economically during Rouhani's administration, we could see how IRG is trying to move these assets to some quote-unquote private owners who are not really so private, but they are relatives and families of the people who are a part of the government or a part of the regime as a whole. What happened two years ago was that the biggest holding companies are not now being owned by anybody even who is related in a way or another to the government, but by some people whose names do not remind you of anything. Who are these people? These people may be anyone, but these anyone's could be a part of this deal only because they had relationship with IRG. 
under government. So it's not like uh, today I feel that I'm wealthy enough and now let's go and buy a company as big as the petroleum company and can do that. I can't. I need to actually put a part of that IRG as a mediator for this transaction between being a government-owned company to my ownership. They appear everywhere. And that is why even if you are a wealthy person who wants to become an investor, you have to work with intelligence service there. Also, economically, with Sapahan IRG. People believe that the entire country is now owned and run by IRG. The problem is that nobody really has exact figures of assets owned by each one of these entities. Exactly. Uh, but, but I think it's safe to say that Revolution Guards have the largest holding in the country as a financial and economic empire in the country. Among the grievances voiced by the striking workers is unsafe and un- unhealthy working conditions. Working in a summer heat, as you mentioned, with temperatures sometimes exceeding 120 degrees in southern parts of Iran, being exposed to hazardous chemical and using substandard equipment, so forth and so on. Also, since their work schedule requires them to work, as you mentioned, 24 to 26 days and take four to six days off, a large number of these workers sleep in dismal dormitories set up by the contractors Can you tell us more about these working and living conditions? I don't know if your audience can imagine 150 degrees Fahrenheit. This was the record today in Dehlaran, which is the hottest spot in Iran. I worked in a factory, which is in Samnan. Today it is closed. It is owned by one of the very close relatives of Raisi. And it was closed 10 years ago for no reason. They just decided to close the factory. And I know what it means when you enter uh, the warehouse. This is the only resting place for the workers, regardless of how strong their condition is, can give you even a little breather. And when the temperature is above 120, you no more feel the difference between 120 and 150 because you faint and you lose your senses. And I remember the first day I fainted without even knowing. So I was talking and I I can't remember what happened next. But I could see people trying to splash some water on my face. People do not get used to it. No matter the contractor is a private contractor or the government contractor, the one who is in charge of the production should be responsible for is the health of the workers. And they're not. Based on the labor code, the owner of the company and the contractor are responsible. But as the privatization happens, the first thing that they are given the right to actually is to eliminate this responsibility from themselves. And they even mention in the contracts that they are not accountable for 
anything, not only the matter of safety and health, neither about necessary uniforms. So many of these workers even have to purchase the uniform, the safety helmets that they put on. Or even if they are given, they have to share with others. The Western sanction has given enough reasons for these private sections in Iran to have enough excuse not to provide any facilities They say we are under sanction, we cannot import these tools or we cannot have the luxury of giving you the very basic that you need to live on, even the water. When we talk about Asaluye, Asaluye does not have drinking water and the water comes in tanks. Imagine that you don't have enough water to take a shower. Several years ago, the current oil minister, Bijan Zangene, said that his ministry had 40,000 employees in charge of policing and security. Of course, he said that in the context of complaining about the previous government, right? At the time, based on the figures that he gave, this would be one out of five employees of the oil ministry, not the contract employees, but the rest of them. One out of five would be in charge of security and policing and surveillance. It's very telling. It's remarkable, and it kind of resonates with what you said earlier about how securitized this sector of the economy is. It's remarkable that these striking workers have organized such a spectacular industrial action in a sector that is highly securitized by an authoritarian regime and in the absence of any formal labor organization, such as a union or a syndicate. Having an independent labor organization is not only one of these strikes, but has been a key demand of workers in other sectors of Iran's economy for years. Can you talk about this critical demand and the obstacles to the formation of such labor organizations? It's a right which has never been met. But you mentioned something very critically important. That is, beyond all this suppression, deregulations, etc., etc., it is amazing to see how at such high scale could these workers have their, I bold this word, hidden assemblies and councils to organize. This is where I say the theory meets the practice perfectly, that workers, due to the nature of their job and how they put themselves in this process of production are organized. Let me compare it to the women's movement. I'm part of that movement too. So I can easily see how the workers' movement can more easily organize themselves beyond all those suppression, uh, while the women's movement can't. For both, there is one thing in common. They don't have the right for assembly, union, or any independent council or organization. Both are criminalized even in Iran. But it is harder when we want to tackle something which is regarded genderized or the matter of gender equality to gather as many activists and women in the streets 
but it is much easier or let's say more practically done and has always been done in all four decades when it comes to the workers' movement. It is because of the nature of the work, the space that they work and how these workers are connected to each other and how their families are also a part of it outside the working place. So their living place and what we call it in geography, the urban enclaves that the workers live are also directly related to the workplace. What is a kind of a surprise today, which makes people ask more and more questions, what is happening behind the curtains and how these workers are really doing these organizing strikes is that when we talk about the petroleum contract workers, most of them are not working in the places where it is adjacent to their living place. So many of them come from different cities. They are gathered in one place, which is Asaluya, a desert place. Maybe we can later on talk about the environmental issue and the climate uh, change and the displacement that happened in order to have that gigantic factory there. It used to be a residential place, but no more. No urban life is going on there. And there are completely disconnected even from their own family to support. However, they are doing these organized strikes. As the power is in number and their number would grow and there are other sectors of the society which are supporting and actually they're going also on strike and protest today and they're joining the strikers, I'm sure that there would be more safe zone for knowing what is going on and how well the workers are uniting today beyond all those obstacles and especially the matter of the right to have their unions. Shadia, there have been statements of solidarity from different labor unions, activists, and political organizations in support of the striking workers in Iran. For the people outside Iran, whether it's Iranian diasporic communities or non-Iranians who view the struggles for social justice as a universal cause, what is the message that needs to be conveyed? And what specific steps they can take to help their striking brothers and sisters in we should, Iran. We should not look at it only as a matter of Iranian movement. We talked about how important uh, such movement is impacting other countries, including the United States in, in a wrong run. But beyond that, the working class of the world today, especially uh, you know, in the era of neoliberal policies and globalization, are sharing a lot of wounds, common wounds. And as the pandemic even proved it to every one of us, that we share a destiny, and that is the struggle for the right of us. And why not being together and support one another? Let's support each other in, in the struggle. And one of the things that we have to bear in mind is that Iran is not only a capitalist country, but ideologically is a dictatorship 
in which no voice can easily be heard outside of it. What we can do is to be their voice first. So cover what is going on and share their struggle with the rest. Second, while we're doing that, we learn from each other and we also share our knowledge and experience with each other. So sharing the experience is what every worker really demands. The workers that come to our clubhouse every day, they really get thrilled when they hear somebody from Pakistan or, or some organization from Turkey, the other organization from Canada are giving their support. They feel that they're not alone and they can be supported. In the end, we cannot even take a baby step if we are not united. So here, I want to ask your audience to show the support in any way that they can. If they can send a statement, an open letter, a message, or if they can do rallies to show the world that they support the Iranian workers. We have had that support when the matter of war comes onto the table, and we are really thankful for that. But the matter and the impact of the imperialism and the impact of the dictatorship is not limited to the matter of war, but the war on the working class, which we can see is happening today in Iran. And I hope that many of the organizations would step in and show their support. Shadiar Omrani is a researcher, a freelance journalist and an activist. She's also a founding member of two Iranian organizations advocating gender equality. She spoke with Shahram Aghamir. That's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. Mira Nabulsi is our senior producer. Our media partner is a Status Hour podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at Vomina radio at gmail.com. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And thank you for listening. The Funk. Have you ever wondered about The Funk? And why this music is so hard? What is Funk? 
Where does it come from? Why does everybody want to rap on it? Sample it. Dance to it. Make love to it. Eat biscuits with it. Take on the system with it. Who are these people? About the thing, baby. About the wrong thing, maybe. You want to know about the history of funk? Tune in Fridays at 10 with Ricky Vincent and the crew on KPFA. I'm like, I'm already happiness. Can I really claim? I made it to the music. DJ's Radio, a show of appreciation with Gordo Cabeza, Rashida Chase, DJ Plattern, and DJ Malachi. The soulful music of Motown we were raised on and the sounds it led us to every Sunday night from 10 p.m. to 1 a.m. right here on 94.1 KPFA and KPFA.org. Listening to 94.1 FM KPFA and KPFB 89.3 FM in Berkeley, KFCF 88.1 FM in Fresno, and K24 8BR 97.5 FM in Santa Cruz, and online all the time at kpfa.org. Coming up next, it's going down. But first, the news. 